Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between, welcome to another episode of the Jake Botel Sports Experience. Got a magnificent guest today um, via the magic of the internet, um, speaking about an ancient game from another part of the world, which I'm very keen to talk about. Very excited to have someone on the game uh, on the podcast who actually knows about the sport of hurling. Uh, I'm an Australian who sort of blusters my way through it and, and you know, attempt to learn and talk about it uh, at any chance I get, really. I can bend anyone's ear to a conversation about hurling. It's what I do. Um, but this man knows far more than I, and I am very excited to have this conversation. I'm prepared to be educated, to learn. I come with an open mind. Um, and welcome, Mark Hogan to the Jake Botel Sports Experience. How are you, Mark? Hi, Jake. How are you doing? Thanks, thanks for having me, and, and God bless the internet. That's right. What a what a great, you know, the, the, the magic of the internet. I started doing this podcast prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, but, but it really picked up during COVID because I had to find something to do with my time when I was working from home. Um, but the magic of the internet has brought so many guests from around the world but just crazy happenstance, I did an episode about hurling, about watching the hurling, and you happened to find that episode and, and heard my forlorn call for, for someone to come on and talk who actually knew what they were talking about. Is that, that how it happened? I, I did, but actually it went before I found the reason why I found your podcast was I was I was actually sick a couple of weeks back and just lying in bed going through a tweet deck. I don't know if you ever use Twitter, but tweet deck is kind of a handy thing. And I have a hurling column there and I saw that you had posted and didn't know it was you obviously. I just came across a Twitter post uh, of a of a video of a girl showing her or sharing her camogie skills and experience with a lacrosse player yeah. in the United States. And I thought that's interesting because that's something that kind of tweaks my interest. The crossovers are, are always very, very interesting in, in the games I find. And that's, uh, I've, I played, I played hurling since I was a young kid. Um, but I'm also very interested in other sports as well, and particularly how sports develop and change o over the years. Yeah. And so, yeah, we can talk about hurling in, in that context and all the larger context of hurling in, in Irish culture. Uh, and then how uh, hurling fits into the overall what we call the Gaelic Athletic Association, which is the association which organizes the, the originally Irish games, which kind of came out of a cultural and political area as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the dog is uh, barking there. I don't know if you can, you can hear that. Hopefully it's not coming over too much. No, that's right. The we listen can co cover all that. <laughs> the listeners will just be happy. Yeah, it's not course, my bird in the background for once. So <laughs> that, 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 that's okay. I'll just hopefully the dog stops there. He just, he just loves to see people come to the door. <laughs> that's fine. No, no worries at all. Um, yeah, fascinating. I was so happy when you reached out. Um, and this is what I love about doing this. Um, I was speaking to a mate a few weeks ago who has just started on the career of, you know, pro wrestling in, in, in the WWE sense. And, and that's a world I don't know a lot about. But getting to talk with him about something that he was so passionate about, I find really inspiring um, to hear, uh, you know, about other people and their passion for sports. I want to start off asking you, why hurling? So many are, you know, you obviously, you know, um, grew up in Dublin. Obviously, that, that's where you, you certainly, you know, yep. play, played your hurling. 
there must have been other sports to choose from you know um you know gaelic football i gather is is quite you know a dominant sport in dublin as i imagine football sure. the, the soccer variety would be what was it about hurling why was hurling the the sport for you um as a kid it, hurling um as as a child uh, the first time i came across hurling actually was i remember very clearly it was in uh, what we call primary school and in uh, in ireland kind of school you go to kind of determines the sports that, that that you play to a certain extent and the school i went to was more uh, had more of the irish games some schools are more the the, the the soccer and that kind of stuff or rugby, uh, but we we uh, did the Irish games. Now I was only seven or eight at the time, and the teacher came in with a box of hurlies and said, "We're, we're playing hurling now," and so we all went out into the field. And I, I can only now, as an adult, I can only because I've I've coached kids uh, before as well, and I can only sort of stand back now and think how that must have looked because it was just a, a melee of kids chasing around the field, trying to hit this small ball. It's, it's called a, a slither. So it's, it's, a, it's a small uh, leather ball. It's quite hard, actually. Uh, sort of a baseball consistency, almost that, that, that way. Not, not as heavy as a baseball, but that kind of uh, uh, form and shape and, and almost, almost, almost the same uh, wave as that. But of course, we couldn't control it very well. So the chances of you hitting the ball were, were slim. The chances of you hitting somebody else were actually higher. Uh, and so that's how we kind of learned the game uh, from there so that's where we took it on but obviously we, we'd get football as well uh, soccer was around as well and later I played a bit I played a bit of golf mm -hmm. but I always came back to the hurling because the hurling for me was the uh, was the game that that was the cornerstone of every other game shall we say uh, that I found uh, soccer skills are slightly different obviously uh, getting football is very closely related to hurling in that we still we play on the same field we have the same shape in terms of the, how the players are laid out. We have the same scoring, but obviously it's played with football. The hurling for me then became more and more interesting just because it's kind of a very, very skillful game that I would have to say I never fully mastered in all the years that, that, that I played it, even though I played to a reasonably high level. But there were still some skills that I had real difficulty with and maybe didn't pay enough attention to uh, over the years. So you had that side of the game, which is the, the skills-based aspect to it, trying to control the ball uh, at speed. Uh, a hurley ball will travel up to about 100 miles an hour when, when it's hit very, very quickly. Uh, the pitch is a big pitch as well. It's about 150 metres uh, long and about 75 metres wide. So the ball can travel uh, 80, 90 yards or 80, 90 metres. People would typically hit the ball. It's a bit longer nowadays. Depends on, on the weather as well. Back in the old days when the balls weren't as good, when the slips weren't as good, they would get very wet and very heavy as a result, so they wouldn't go as far. But the ball traveled about 18, 90 meters when, when struck in the air. And of course, when the ball lands, there's a challenge to try and take possession of the ball. You can catch the ball, you can put your hand up in, in a forest of hurlies and hope that uh, your hand doesn't get, take, doesn't get taken off. You can try and control it in the air with, with, with the hurley. And to bring it under control, you can also try and take your opponent's hurley out. So there are all kinds of things happening, and that's just in the air. And then this can happen on the ground as well. You can strike the ball on, on the ground. Now, when I played, uh, I, I, I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, the hurling was transitioning from, it was still very much a ground-based game where uh, you would actually strike the ball on the ground most of the time. No, actually, that's that's not true. But it was it, it was it, it was transitioning over the years. When when I first when I look back at old movies, a lot of ground striking is involved. 
Uh, nowadays, you actually see a lot less ground striking players try and take the ball into into uh, into possession very very quickly uh, to try and get it then hit it further in, in the air. But uh, the ground based uh, hurling was what was played mostly at the time. So you actually you practice a lot on the ground striking left and right. And this is the other thing as well: how you strike the ball. Um, there's no kind of set rule to it. It's uh, you can strike it off either side, left side or right side. When you're given the hurley, you, the instruction is that your your rising hand, your dominant hand, is the one that's on top. But I've seen I've come across players who actually had their weak their left hand on top. Or what I found always found very hard is if I came across a left-handed player was what side is he going to hit the ball on? Because it just it just screws your mind up. The whole thing yeah. is, is turned around, so it's very very difficult to understand. Uh, but you can hit either side. You can hit left side or right side. You can hit at hip height, at above your head, on the ground. Um, you can also kick the ball if you want. You can hand pass the ball. The hand pass is a small small pass where you 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 strike it with the palm of your hand uh, and move the ball about five ten meters to to an opponent. Uh, so you can kick the ball, but the the I say, the penalty for kicking the ball is such that you might get a hurley across your your feet very very quickly. So people tend to not not to do that. It'd be a brave man to do that. And that's actually interesting when you look at the games now. You see the players. Uh, so when I when I played. Uh, Shin injuries were the most common thing that I always remember from playing as, as a kid because that's where the ball used to be. And yeah. people would be pulling, that's what we call pulling around where the shin is. Um, but nowadays, the ball is very much in the air, very much an aerial game these days. And you look at the players now and you say, like, nobody's wearing shin guards. Nobody wears shin guards these days. You see shin guards maybe back in the 70s and 80s, like from football, yeah. uh, football shin guards. But no, nobody wears shin guards these, these days. And I don't know, is it a machismo thing? Or people say they don't need it, but the reality is the ball is much more in the air than, than it used to be in, in years gone by. So that's what, it, it kind of, in all the games that I had, the, the, the Gaelic football, I gave up Gaelic football when I was about 15 or 16. The thing that always annoyed me about Gaelic football was the tackle was so poorly defined. It was, it was very difficult to actually do a proper tackle in Gaelic football. In hurling, it's, it's less so. The tackle is not really that well defined in hurling, but the ball is uh, it's traveling so much. Uh, that there's a chance always for to intercept the ball. There's a chance of the, the player losing control. That's easier to get onto the ball. Uh, just say when you take the ball into possession, you can catch the ball once in your hand, uh, and you can you can travel with it for four steps. After four steps, you have to either uh, strike it away, hand pass it, or kick it. Or what you can do is you can balance it on your hurley and put it onto your hurley. Now the hurley we haven't talked about. The hurley is a, is a wooden stick. It's about a yard long, 36 inches, 34 inches, 38 inches, that, that kind of, it comes up to your hip. That's kind of the, the, the old measure. Yep. Um, so you can balance it on that, but it's a flat stick. So you can either balance it on the hurley, like it almost looks like a wooden spoon. Yeah. Uh, or you can bounce it. You can bounce it on the hurley as well when you're, when you're uh, traveling. So you can, you can say you can put it on the hurley, run with the ball, take it into your hand again. That's the second time you have it. And then you have to, you can't catch it anymore. So what you might see then after that is a player balancing. They take the, they've taken the ball, they've soloed the ball, they've taken it back into the hand, but they can't get rid of it. So they end up soloing the ball. Soloing is what we call when we move the ball on the hurley. Yeah. Um, and then what you see is they'll strike the ball off the hurley. Yeah. So they'll flick the ball up from the hurley and then strike it as opposed to taking it back into their hand and then striking it. Yeah. And that's, again, that's, that's a tricky skill. I remember years ago, I explained this to a German guy I used to live with in Germany. And uh, he wanted to see some of the skills. So I took him down to the park one day 
And uh, I was just showing him just hitting the ball back and forth just in his hand and catching it and that, that kind of stuff. And then one stage, the ball came back to me and I just absentmindedly, um, I just caught it on my hurley and flicked it up and hit it back to him. And he said, what was that? What did you do there? What was that? I said, well, I just, just didn't catch the ball. I just flicked it up off the hurley. And he was like, wow, I've never seen that before. <laughs> but again, it's, it's, it's the variety of the game. The game allows a lot of the, these kind of things. Yeah. So you can see unusual things like that where people are literally improvising because it's not, it's not forbidden. And I've, I've never seen somebody head the slither, but I think you can do it. Yeah, and I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if you see it one day and people are going like, can you do that? And say, well, I think you can. I, I don't think it's this loud. Yeah, and so that's kind of what made me. That's that's attracted me to the game. Well, and I can I can really understand why because if, if I think about you know playing sports as a kid, I, the game I sort of I didn't get into sports until relatively late. Uh, I guess in my childhood, I didn't start playing um, soccer until I was about twelve or thirteen. I had no interest in sports until the two thousand and two World Cup. And that, for some reason, captured my imagination and watched all of that and then started playing soccer. And the thing I guess you find, and I've done some soccer coaching, is that when you throw a ball to kids in soccer, the hardest thing to impose on them is, is a sense of order and rules. So I guess, you know, hurling from that perspective, and you, you see it straight away, and it's, it's, it's a hard game to explain to people who want a sense of order and rationality in that, there's so much room for sort of wild innovation. I guess that must be really appealing to young players who, who want to play, you know, uh, uh, that's the operative word, isn't it? You, you are playing. Um, and you seem to very much be playing when you're playing hurling. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very, very skillful game. And you'll see even guys walking around, uh, uh, you see it actually a lot more than you used to. It's become a lot more popular hurling in places where it wasn't strong before. Uh, so hurling in, in Ireland, um, uh, so imagine, uh, obviously for your listeners, I don't know if you can imagine a map of Ireland, but essentially if you look at the, at the palm of your hand, uh, your hand is like a map of Ireland. It's got two parts, the top, the north and, and the south. Uh, between Dublin and Galway, Dublin is sort of halfway down the, the east coast and Galway is halfway down the west coast. South of that, it tends to be where hurling is, is stronger. Uh, there are pockets in other, in other countries, uh, other, other counties rather other parts of Ireland where hurling is quite strong. Mm. But I've noticed over the years now, you, you will see kids walking around uh, the towns with hurleys in their hands and, and, and a slither. Mm. And all they're doing is they're just, they're just controlling the ball when they're walking around. They might be just bouncing it on, 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 the, on, the, on the hurley. Uh, they might be just striking it to each other, just a couple of meters apart from each other, but they'll always have the hurley in, in, in their hand. And that kind of, I don't know, and some if people just uh, arrive into Ireland and they wonder why these people walk around with these sticks, it might be a bit intimidating. <laughs> but they, uh, it, I don't know if the kids think that too sometimes, they think it might be a bit of machismo about it because you, you yeah. do need a bit of uh, cojones to, to play the game as well. Um, but it, it's, it's a game that, it, it is very, very loose in, in its structures. Uh, so you can pick up Hurley, you can pick up a, a slither or a tennis ball. You see guys, guys you know, tennis ball, hitting ball around. It's any kind of, any kind of ball shape like that. And then it lends itself to other games. And what's interesting, actually, um, just as, as, as a divergence, uh, I mentioned hurling is, uh, is part of the, what's called the GAA, which is the Gaelic Athletic Association. Uh, and the GAA was established in, in 1884. And it was a time of 
Uh, and again, this is interesting when looking back in the history of sport and everything else. It was a time of, shall I say, of codification of games. So in, in, in the UK, in England, you had sort of rugby and you had uh, soccer being established. Uh, I think um, AFL may have been defined around that time as well. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure because there's always, there's always talk about the relationship between GAA and, and, and Aussie rules. And if I'm not mistaken, I think AFL may have been codified before gay football was, was codified. But there's always this idea of these, these field sports, these, these, these idea of games that you play. Um, so the Gaelic Athletic Association, when it was founded, it, it was a, a game to promote Irish games, Gaelic games. And they kicked four games. There were four games that were initially in the GAA. There was uh, hurling, Gaelic football, handball, which is uh, not Olympic handball. It's kind of the handball you'd see in a kind of a squash court kind of thing. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's in, in, in an enclosed court. Yeah. And then there is rounders. Okay. So rounders is very similar to baseball. And I, I, to be honest, it was something I had at the back of my mind. I think I had to check it recently because I knew I was, I was going to talk to you. Is rounders really a GAA game? And it actually is, but it's just nobody, nobody, it's very, very, very played very, 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 very uh, small areas or yeah. very, very, by very, very few people. But again, it's the idea of a stick and ball game. It's a mm -hmm. stick and ball. It's just you take the stick and ball and you just organize it for something else. So you might see kids playing cricket, but you might see kids playing cricket with their hurley, for example, or you might see kids on tennis court with two hurleys. Just it's it's something that they're doing. They're just hitting the ball around the court. Uh, you see now in the GAA clubs here, they have what's called a very often they have just a big wall and they play wall ball, and wall ball is just hitting the ball against against the wall and it comes back to you. But it's just that idea of with the game with the stick, the ball, the sitter, just controlling it and playing with it and taking all the options, the, the hitting the ball above you, hitting the ball beneath you, behind you, left, right, over your shoulder, mm. all those variations come into it. Isn't it interesting, like, the a, a couple of things it makes me think of, I've just recently picked up a soccer ball again um, with COVID and that sort of thing, not really having any groups to go out and play soccer in. I used to have a social soccer club, which, you know, hasn't been functioning. And just out in the out on the back porch sort of thing. There's a slab of concrete that I can kick the ball back to myself. And I thought just the other day, I thought I started practicing on my left foot. And when I played, I never went out and practiced kicking like this, just to myself, just trying to perfect that simple, you know, pass to a teammate on the left, on the right, one touch. And I thought, gosh, if only I twigged when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, hey, just go and put half an hour in every, every, uh, afternoon you you probably find you get a lot better um <laughs> but it's also just a lot of fun um but just thinking about just I, i'd love to sort of dig into talking about um the origins of the the gaa and and specifically hurling within that because something that i often get when i share aussie rules with friends from america for instance, they go, oh my gosh, this is such an Aussie sport. You can just tell, like how, how crazy are Australians, you know, playing this sport? No pads, etc. The moment I laid eyes on hurling, my own sort of, um, I guess, simplistic view was, oh, this feels so Irish. This feels so quintessentially <laughs> like an Irish game. I can't really imagine anywhere else, you know, coming up with this sport. And so it was interesting to me, um, to learn when I started reading the Hurlers book, um, by Paul Paul Rouse, I don't know, Paul Rouse, Rouse, um, 
that that's very much there's a very much this sense of irish identity sort of tied in with the sport of hurling um, unless i'm reaching here but what is it about the sport that ties so deeply into the culture of, of the country like it's, it's a sport that i understand is thousands of years old yeah i think it's the in some sense it's the lack of structure yeah okay uh, in, in the game that there's a lot of scope for people to express themselves and, and do so so many different things um i, I think uh, the irish are quite like that they're kind of a bit independent and and uh free will so it's very hard to get an irishman to, to do something if he doesn't want to do it <laughs> yeah but if you do want him to do it he might find a way to do it that you didn't think he could do it and yeah. that that's, can, can happen that can happen sometimes but i think also what's interesting about the game it, it, I, I don't know <laughs> The, the game is rooted in Irish culture. It goes back. Now, obviously, history is a funny thing. Um, and Paul Rouse is a good guy. It's R-O-U-S-E, if people want, want to look him up. And he's got many interesting thoughts and, and books and lectures on, on the history of hurling and sport in general. Um, now, the earliest reference that I know to hurling is uh, in Irish mythology, uh, the story of, of Cúcullin. And the story of Cucullin is, if I recall correctly, now I haven't looked at this in a long time, but uh, essentially he's, he's a young boy who is uh, a gifted warrior. And he is also, see, hurling at the time was not a game to play for sports for one county to beat another county, one team to beat another team. It was, my understanding was at the time it was seen as a way of uh, forming youths into soldiers to give them uh, a sense of the courage um, just that is needed to, to fight in battle. And the story of Cucullin is, I think that he was, I think, sent out, if I'm not mistaken, I'm sure people might correct me on this, uh, and the way things were back in the days, in front of a, a large army uh, up, up in the north of Ireland. Mm. And uh, there was a large dog which was set upon him uh, to uh, attack him, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly. But what he did actually is he struck the slither into the throat of the dog and vanquished the dog. And that kind of established his reputation. So that's, that's the early myth of, of, of the game of hurling. But stick and ball games are, are common across cultures. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very uh, thing you'll see. Like you, you would go to Europe, you see hockey, ice hockey, there's field hockey, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you'll see squash, tennis, et cetera, et cetera. Golf is a stick and ball game. And so all these things that have been around for a while and they've all developed into different forms. Um, and I remember actually going to a lecture with the, the Paul Rouse gave years ago. Um, and actually he was talking about how hurling was kind of promoted in the, 18th, in the 19th century in Ireland as a development from cricket. Cricket used to be sort of played apparently a lot more widely in Ireland than, than it is now. But again, another, another ball and, and stick game. But hurling was something which the landlords uh, back in the day started promoting in the 19th century. And typically it was sort of a, a landlord versus landlord, estate versus estate uh, kind of game. And that's, uh, and again, I can only imagine the, the rules then were not nearly as fine as, as they are now. And I think it typically a, a game would be sort of like to get a ball, to hurl a ball from one area to another. And that's how you typically won. So again, you see that also in uh, old English football. 
Uh, prior before, before it was codified, it was very much to move a ball from one area to another. And you, you still see games now in England. There are these, these games that they have some places in England where it is very much that there was a ball and there's just a massive melee of people trying to move a ball from a one village to, to another village. And, and that's kind of a, a, how I imagine hurling used to be in, in the old days, except there was a stick involved. Um, and actually, the interesting thing also about the stick, the stick's made from ash. Yeah. And uh, ash used to be a lot more common in Ireland than it is now. And I know it's more more, more difficult to source ash in Ireland uh, for various reasons. And very often, I think the ash that's sort, that we use now to source to create hurlies sometimes is imported. Mm-hmm. But again, it's tied to the island because the ash tree is, is, is of Ireland. So that, that's where the sticks came from. Uh, the sticks then have a certain pliability. They are, they are quite hard, but they have a certain amount of give in them as well, uh, which can be useful as well in that it, if you hit something, it's not going to always break. Okay, so you have the stick is going to have to last for a while. And as a kid, I always have to have two sticks with me when I went to a game, when I went to to a match. Now, the problem was when you were a kid, you couldn't afford many, many hurlies. So the first hurley was of a certain shape and size, and the second hurley was a different shape and size. And you just had to be ready because they were your your, your hurlies. Back in those days, they were your hurlies. And we had a a teacher back in the day who used to, I don't know why he asked us to do this in national school, we used to. make zombie hurley shall we say we, we would take one hurley and we'd cut off a bit of the end of it and we'd take another bit of a hurley and we glue on the other bit of it to that end to make a bigger uh, striking part now the striking part of a hurley is called a boss and boss is an irish word and means palm okay yeah. so you imagine you're using the palm it's about, and it's about the size of your palm but what we would do is with by making these kind of uh, zombie hurleys we, we'd end up with a bigger boss and you'd have a bigger striking surface for the hurley and then you would put metal bands around them and you'd nail the metal bands to, to get together. But the, um, that, that was the, the issue with the hurleys back then, it was the ash. But the problem is that the, you could get your own hurley thrown into you halfway through a game because you'd break the first hurley. But the second hurley would be like, it's like trying to play right foot and left foot. Can you imagine yeah. somebody said, now you can play left foot because it was, it was that different to the, to the, to the first hurley. Yeah. Now hurleys are, are that because the game has, has increased so much, there's a lot more consistency in hurleys than there used to be. So the chance that you might get a hurley that was the same as the one that you just broken is, is, is quite high. But again, they're all ash, all, oh, sorry, originally ash. There was actually an effort to make plastic, I wouldn't say plastic hurleys. They were kind of plastic uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, these things did appear for a while, but they, they disappeared after that. And every so often we, we, see, we see that people trying to make alternative types, types of hurleys, but people always just go back to the ash. So it's rooted in history. It's very much rooted in the Irish culture. It has developed over the years. It, it became codified in the 1880s and 1884, along with when Gaelic football was codified at, at the same time. And in the early eight, from, from then on, uh, the structure then came into place where you clubs playing. And then once you clubs playing each other, that grew up into what the next level uh, of administration in Ireland is the county. Mm-hmm. And in Ireland, there are 32 counties on, on the island uh, of Ireland. And those 32 counties are then grouped into provinces. So I don't know if people are familiar with the provinces of Ireland. There are four provinces. Uh, Leinster is in the east. Ulster is in the north. Connacht is northwest. And Munster is, is southwest. So those are kind of how, how the game has been built up. Firstly, at the clubs, then at the county, then at the, at the provincial level. Yeah. And over the years, what we've seen actually is the provincial games. Uh, so, okay, so maybe I'll explain a bit about this. The club yeah, is very sure. much uh, based uh, in the local area of, of, of where you are. And typically when the first uh, became organized, it was organized uh, around the parish. So there was the idea, Ireland had, 
became a very Catholic country. Mm-hmm. Churches were ubiquitous and they were organized on, on parishes. So clubs were then organized on parishes. So when the first games were uh, started to be to be uh, to happen, it was parish versus parish. It was club versus club. And you, you played where you were born, where you where you were born, essentially. So you were born to a parish, you went to school there and, and you played for that club. And this is the odd thing is uh, you, you, that never really changed. So you, you might move around a bit and where, where you where you live, you might move for a different parish. But it would be very, very rare that somebody would change the, the club that they played with. They always tended to stick with the club that they played with. And then over the years, then, as uh, urban migration has happened, there's obviously been a lot of uh, people moving from the country to, to the cities over the last couple of uh, last, last century. Uh, people still tend actually to play for their, their, their club where possible. But what definitely they still do is play for their county. So the next level of representation after the club is the county. As I mentioned, there are, there are 30, 32 counties. Hurling is, is strongest in, in the south of, of the country. Uh, there are in, in the northeast, actually curious enough, in the northeast where Belfast is, just above Belfast, there are some very, very strong hurling uh, clubs as well. And Antrim, which is the county, is quite a, a strong uh, uh, county as well. But most is placed in the southwest. And, and in the West, but you'll often hear of people who live in Dublin, but who travel home twice a week, might drive two hours to get to a training session, do a training session, then drive two hours back to Dublin. And that might happen twice a week during the week, and then at the weekend, they go back for a game. But it's because they're so closely tied to where they've come from that that's what, what they'll do. Uh, inter-county is the, is the, is the most, uh, is the highest form of hurling. Um, now, the, you, there is actually a level above that, which is provincial, but for, this is a, a curious thing. The provincial hurling um, is they were every so often, every year, they would take the best hurlers from the counties and they play interprovincial games. So they play Leinster against uh, Munster or Connacht Ulster. And um, I guess similar to the, in the uh, in Australia, the state of origin uh, kind of games. Yeah. And what they used to have is that the biggest game then would be on St. Patrick's Day in, uh, in Dublin in a stadium called Crow Park. And we'll talk more about Crow Park later. But that actually has dwindled over the years. And it's hard to say what, why it has. Um, and now the biggest game on St. Patrick's Day up to last year is now the club All-Ireland competitions. So it's kind of went sort of, in some sense, two levels below that. The clubs then became, have become more and more important. And now just recently with COVID and a few other odd things and trying to get the calendar sorted, uh, they're going to change the date of the club games now. Instead of being St. Patrick's Day in March, they're going to make it to the end of end of January for some reason. I, 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 don't, I haven't followed it that closely, but you see it sort of the games, the 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 whichever uh, structures are changing in the sense that the provincial was very important for a long time in the fifties and sixties. The intercounty has always been important. The clubs was the bedrock of the intercounty. The clubs now have become more and more important, and you can understand actually what's happened there is that. In, in a season where you have an inter-county, uh, your county is doing well, the chances are that your club loses its best players to the county for the duration of the county championship. And this means that the club suffers as a result. But of course, as I said before, the ties are with the club. The players grew up in the club. They went to the club when they were eight or nine years old. They played with these guys since they were eight or nine years old. And now when the club needs them most, they're playing for the county. Hmm. While the county gets the respect and the veneration, so a lot of guys say, well, my mates are playing. I want to support my mates. So there's been that tension over the years between the, 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 the club, the county, and the province. The province seems to have definitely lost out. 
Uh, the counties will always probably be strong because that's where the main competition is, the so-called All-Ireland Finals. They're, they're, they're the counties. But the clubs now become more and more important. And you see uh, the sort of the idea of super clubs now mentioned, mm-hmm. where when, when I was a kid, nobody talked about super clubs, but some clubs are just very, very big and attract a, a, lot, a lot of people. Well, I guess... I feel we digress there. I'm not quite sure where we started. No, that's fine. No, that's no. Things. Digression. That's that's totally fine. That's what the Jake Botel Sports Experience is all about. We just dive in. A um, couple of things uh, to to sort of to to circle back on the the loyalty, obviously, to where you've sort of come from, where you've where you've grown up and played all your hurling through. I, I wanted to touch on the fact that a concept that's really foreign to a lot of people. I follow the NFL a lot in America. I follow the AFL here, um, particularly in the NFL. You know, there's a lot to talk about contracts and, and money and, and in the, uh, the major league baseball at the moment, you know, there's sort of this war between millionaires where no one's prepared to make a deal and get the season going because owners want one thing, players want one thing. And it's, it's all sort of very alienating, mm-hmm. I think to the fan bases who are just like you all earn millions of dollars. Let's let's have some sport. The hurling players and and, and football players, my understanding, are not paid to play. Is that correct? Correct, correct. Yeah, they're amateurs. So so they're amateurs. So when so how has this endured? Is is this a testament to the love of the sports, the love of the culture of the yeah. sports? It is, and it's also kind of again. It comes back down to the way the, the game is is in the culture of of, of the country, yeah. uh, and by culture I mean by the way the way the way we do things around here. It, it is mm-hmm. intrinsically linked to, uh, for example, my, my daughter. She's taken up Gaelic football, so the ladies' Gaelic football now is is quite big, and she goes down to the club and she's coached then by the the uh, the, the uh, her friends' dads are 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 doing the coaching. But they will then always be associated w- with the club. The, the they don't they don't do it for the money. They do it for the love of the game, and that is there's love of the game. There is a bit of kudos that people get through recognition. So if you become the big star in, in, in the club, people recognize you around around the the area. If you become uh, inter county, that that's that's pretty big as well. People kind of get to know you as well, and you get you might get on television and that kind of stuff. And there's a bit of reward there. But there has never been a huge drive towards people getting paid uh, for the game now in the last couple of years that that has changed slightly uh, but it, there's no there's no there aren't, nobody's banging down the doors for people to get paid so firstly uh, because it's a relatively small sport played in, uh, mostly in ireland ireland is not a huge country uh, about five million people at, at the moment there thereabouts so there's not a big tv market for the for these kind of games so we don't get big tv stations coming in saying i i give you 100 million to show the games or yeah. somebody else coming in and say I, I give you 150 million to show the games that, that that's that's not happening so there's not a huge amount of money going going into or being being thrown at, at the game where the money comes into the game is through sponsorship uh and, and mostly through uh people spectators attending the games and so you always have this incongruity where you will find that there is and it's, it's, it's a nice thing. People actually kind of do, do appreciate this. So Crow Park, as I mentioned, is, is, is the main stadium and it, it hosts about 80,000 people at the moment is the capacity of Crow Park. And uh, it has quite historical connections to the country as well. And we'll talk about that, that later. But 
because I'm just in, I can see there's a picture behind you and I, I, you can I kind of see I, uh, there's somebody was talking a couple of days ago about the best rugby stadiums for the Six Nations and somebody was asking what's it about what is this thing in Ireland about Ireland and unfinished stadiums oh. so I can see that picture behind you and you can't see it I don't know if you can see it but what you have behind you is, is Hill 16 and Hill 16 is supposedly the 16 there, uh, people say, refers to the, uh, the rubble that was taken from the rising in, in Easter 1916 and used to build that embankment, used to build that part of the stadium. Now, that, that's, not, that's not actually true, but that's kind of the, the story that, that actually that exists there. So they're unfinished stadiums. That's why people, that's why that's not covered, because it's always going to be a terrace. People will never change that. That will always be, be, be a terrace. But in any case, that, that's Crow Park, 80,000 people. Come watch the big games uh, towards the end of the summer. Huge amount. That generates a lot of money in people coming through the, to the, uh, the turnstiles. But the players then, they're out there playing the game, doing their best, entertaining, performing, showing great skill. And they will be back to work 24 hours later. They'll be back to work, either teachers, um, lawyers, accountants. Uh, the whole breadth of Irish society plays, plays the game. And the... In the last couple of years, there has been a move towards organizing the players. It's, uh, it's called the Gaelic Players Association now. And this is slightly different to the GAA. So this is actually an attempt, I wouldn't say to unionize, but you kind of get the idea. It's trying to organize mm. the players in, in the association and to get better terms for them. Now, what they wanted in terms of better terms was uh, access to proper training facilities, for example. So that when you went training, that you weren't uh, togging out in the back of the, uh, behind a bush somewhere, for example. Yep. that the water you had, you had hot showers at the end of the day when, when, when you finish training that you decent food and all the rest of it. so that that's kind of built up so now that the training is at quite a high level it's, it's very very uh, in terms of sports and conditioning the uh, facilities to support that are there as well the teams to support that are there the physios the psychologists the video analysts analysts so you, you've seen that kind of go into developments come to sports all, all around the world the level of analysis and performance and preparation has increased over the last 20 or 30 years that, that costs money. But, and where that money is coming from is from the sponsorship and through the spectators coming in. But nobody has yet said, I want to get paid for playing. Now, people have gotten some rewards some, every so often. People might, you might see people advertising, for example, yeah, for a certain brand. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I'm not too sure uh, how that actually works in terms of whether the player gets the money for that or whether the county gets the money for that. There's probably a bit of everything happening there and maybe some money's going underhand and it's cash here and cash there or keep the clothes that you use for the shoot kind of thing. That, that, yeah. that might happen as well. Um, I do know back when my father played uh, and he played to quite a high level, uh, when he moved to Dublin, uh, I remember him telling me stories about uh, uh, that the various clubs tried to get him to come play for them. Uh, so there's like, we can get you a job over here if you come play for us. So that, that has happened before. And I know when I played um, uh, sort of eight, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old uh, in the club that I played in, I'd look around the, the dressing room and I'd see a lot of players from uh, outside Dublin. And I wonder, well, a lot of people come to Dublin anyway. That's kind of where a lot, lot of jobs were. But you wonder, like, were, were kind of arrangements made? How come they're, they're playing for us and not for our neighbours kind of stuff? Yeah. I don't know what's happened. I was far too young at those days. But and knowing what my dad said to me and thinking, well, there might have been discussions about certain benefits, but no direct pay. You don't get paid for, for playing directly. Yeah. But there, there were other kind of enticements to, to ask maybe people pay for this club or that club, particularly if you come to a place like Dublin where you're, maybe you've lost your ties to where you're from. Mm -hmm. You're now living in Dublin. Your family is in Dublin. 
you might want you might fancy the two or three hour drive every evening to go training so you you do move to Dublin eventually but yeah. in those instances that have been people have have changed clubs yeah, I guess, and, and to a degree, I guess that's probably relatable to, to US listeners in terms of not, not quite the same, but because um, I'm sure there's probably far more money passing under the table, but ostensibly, um, you know, college football at some mm. levels operates on that idea of, of amateurs. Obviously, that's changing at the moment with um, changes to laws around name, image, likeness, and all that sort of thing. So that's that's very much going to open the floodgates um, for for players to make money while they play college. But uh, it's it's one of the things that really draws me um, to hurling is is the whole culture around it. Um, I love a lot of different sports, love Australian rules, love American football, but there is something. Uh, I don't know, genuine. There is something, um, I don't know, quite beautiful, I find, about the idea of people wanting to play a game and not be financially um, rewarded for it. People, everyday people um, who play for the love of a game. I find it quite grating, like I was saying, with the Major League Baseball at the moment. We've essentially got a standoff between millionaires um, mm-hmm. you know, over a sport. And I, there's something really nice about hurling. Um, I don't know it, it speaks to me on a on, on a certain level that I that I really appreciate. And um, have there ever been any sort of scandals about that sort of thing? Like, has there ever been you know any sort of you know moments in, in hurling's history where you know it's sort of come out that someone was you know was was paid a significant amount under the table, or is it mostly sort of just been everyone is in it for the for the same reason sort of thing no no everybody's kind of i said that there were I, i'm trying to think was anybody ever i wouldn't say significant scandals i think there, there yeah. may have been questions asked about some some people being involved in promotions but i remember back in the early 2000s there was a very very good cork team uh cork is the southwest of the, of, of the country and they've always been strong in, in hurling um but they went on strike um they were striking for better training conditions essentially is what they were striking for uh, so you can imagine uh, cork is actually quite a, quite a big county people have to travel a lot to to actually go go and train so very often they they train in their local club at their local gym but not every gym is the same around the country so they're saying well we want to have certain baseline facilities and baseline standards that we wanted and that's what they went on strike for yeah. it wasn't for i went on strike i went on strike to get paid i went i went on strike to become a better player better yeah. player that's what they went on strike for um, and actually, as a result of that, then that kind of that one thing, this this kind of Gaelic Players Association kind of has its roots from there. It was the idea that the players uh, wanted to be better represented and have a stronger voice in the matters of, of the association. You can imagine any kind of association, any kind of sports association, um, the organization of the association is, I don't say uh, it's by guys in coats and, and uh, trying to organize, organize things. And that it is that their volunteerism is, is to be commended. Uh, but what takes over then is a sort of certain kind of bureaucracy in the association. And it's the bureaucracy, which is kind of what, what drives the association forward, mm-hmm. as opposed to the playing uh, side of the game. I think that's what the, the GPA has tried to do, is try and make sure the playing side of the game gets more recognition, the players get more, more recognition. Because as I said before, you, you go to a big game, uh, there's a lot of money at the game. And the only people who are not getting money are the people who are doing are the reason why people are there. 
Yeah. So the guys on the TV, all the rest of the advertising around the game, that's all money flying left, right, and center. But the guys, the whole reason to enter for that happening, those guys aren't getting anything. And of course, they are putting a lot uh, on the line. So it, it could be uh, the injuries in hurling don't don't tend to happen a, a lot, uh, surprisingly. Uh, but you you could end up in a situation because you're an amateur, you're supposed to be in work tomorrow, but you could pick up an injury. So what are you going to do? You're going to call your boss and say, "Listen, I can't work because I got injured yesterday." Yeah. That 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 you can't say that. You can't do that. So they're looking for a lot of sort of ways to make that better for themselves. That's that's what they want to do is protect themselves. But nobody's looking to get paid. Nobody nobody looks to get paid. It's fascinating this whole thing of uh, the evolution. Obviously, as you you know, you spoke about the evolution of sport and how sports are played, how sports are um, organised and codified. Obviously, at the moment we've we've got the AFL Women's League, which is you know sort of six or so years, six or seven seasons in, and you know I feel like we're headed for a big off season of change. There's a collective bargaining agreement coming up. I think we might see. Mm. A united front from men's and women's players together, which would be quite historic. Um, and that's sort of, it, it, it's been fascinating to follow. The other podcast I do uh, about the Geelong Cats has been really f- fascinating because you learn, and we've had the chance to interview some of these women who are playing part time, you know, that they're not earning enough through football. To, to give up jobs as, as you said, doctors or, you know, accountants, mm. school teachers, whatever. So I think we're coming to a really interesting sort of flashpoint with AFLW. Um, and it's interesting sort of following the sport of hurling and the GAA. And I don't know if you followed this closely yourself recently, but I've started to hear some things about, you know, the, the Ladies Gaelic Football Association and the Camogie mm. Um, association and the GAA, I was sort of stunned to to learn that they're not all under the same banner. That there's sort of these three separate organisations. Yes. Yeah. And there's this movement now, maybe to try and get them all under the one thing. And it seems to be very heated on Twitter. As a, as a relative outsider, there seems to be a lot of heat about this between people on Twitter. Why is there so much sort of controversy about these these three? organizations potentially coming under the one banner i mean yeah it's it's something that to be honest i i wasn't very familiar with it for a long time that it didn't actually twig when i was a kid that the camogie wasn't part of the, the gaelic athletic association although camogie for for your listeners is actually the, the female version of, of hurling yeah. and very very similar to hurling there are some slight rule variations but if you the skills are very very similar to, to hurling and um uh, when I was a kid, I didn't realize there was a separate association. And now what's grown up in the last couple of years is Ladies Gaelic Football Association. As I mentioned, my daughter plays Gaelic football. And um, I didn't realize that was separate. Although they play on in the GAA grounds, they play in the GAA club, they represent the GAA club. There's not like a, there's not like the, a separate club for it. It is actually the same club, but that they weren't organized in there. And it's, it's a bit of a head melt, to be honest, exactly how this, this, this all works. Yeah. Um, and I was listening to a conversation about it last day because the, this GPA, this Gay Players Association that I mentioned, they're, they're supporting the integration of the, uh, the LGFA, the Lady Gay, Gay Football Association and the Camogie Association into the GAA. And I heard a point somebody making a point last day. Well, you know what? There might be a bit of reticence for that. There are the reasons why it makes sense, but 
again, it's maybe looking at the bureaucrats and the apparatchiks around this, uh, saying, well, you know what? The Ladies Gaelic Football Association has its own distinct identity, even though it uses, it plays everything in the GAA, but it has its own distinct identity. And it has its own sponsors. Now, those sponsors are not sponsors of the GAA. So if you go into the GAA, all of a sudden you're going, well, what happens to my sponsor? What happens to all that, that funding that comes in? Where is all that going to go? Are they going to sponsor the GAA? Are they going to sponsor a sport which is uh, subsumed into another association? So there's all kinds of things happening around that moment. So it's not like it's not like a slam dunk. It would seem obvious that these things should all be organized in, in, one, in one area. But as I said before, there's a, there's a bit of people going, well, you know what? We might lose out on this in, in certain, to a certain extent. I think the players, I think, would like to see it. But I think the challenge but the, from the players' point of view is that um, if you're involved in all these types of sports and there's no coordination between them, you could end up being asked to play like two games uh, one after the other, for example. Mm. Um, because nobody thinks, well, I don't care what your team is doing, I'm just organizing my game. And the yeah. other team says, well, I don't, organize, I don't care what your team is doing, I'm just organizing my game. But the player is caught in, in, in the middle. So there's, there, there are reasons why that makes sense for, from a same point of view to have it integrated. So yeah, it has to be, I think it has to be worked out. Yeah. But this actually is the other thing I choose to mention the games that it just reminds me, my father tells me a story again, say he, he was a, a good player, but he also played inter-county football. Yeah. And um, he actually, he, he, every so often, he, he'll remember and he tell me the story about when he played Kerry. So Kerry is uh, in the southwest of the country and they're a very, very strong Gaelic football team. And it used to be said actually in, in Kerry that you'd have to check your change whenever you, you were in a shop in case you had got any All-Ireland medals in, in your change. <laughs> That they used, they used to win so many uh, at the time, and that that, that was for Gaelic football. Now hurling, again, this is the odd thing. There are there are pockets of of Kerry where hurling is stronger than Gaelic football. Now it wouldn't be as strong as the other counties, but it was good enough. But he he has told me a story where he's actually played on the same day he played a senior intercounty football. I think it might be first uh, an intercounty football match against Kerry, and then intercounty hurling match against Kerry, like one after the other. Far out. Um, so. Yeah, so that's kind of the thing where you sort of you, you have these the dual called dual players, where yeah. there are certain players. Now it doesn't happen very much because you, you actually the time you require for both games is quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, some skills are, are transferable. Obviously, the physical skill, the, the physical uh, endurance and fitness and strength are, are transferable. Um, and some players are what they call dual, dual county or dual, dual players, where they both play uh, hurling and getting football to a high level. But you might find that they might play uh, they might play getting football to uh, inter county level would play on the senior club hurling team. And very often there's a, there's a pull between players where you're trying to get, you want your player to play hurling and he might, there's another guy who wants him to play getting football. Uh, Dublin is a good example of this where in Dublin, getting football was very big in the 1970s. So people, if they wanted a bit of recognition and reward for their efforts, it tended to go towards getting football. It was easier for the getting football guys to entice good hurlers to come play for them. Uh, now it's a bit less. Getting football is probably still bigger in Dublin. In Cork, it's kind of the opposite. Hurling is more important in Cork. So if you're a dual player, uh, the hurlers will probably have first dibs on you. Mm. And then you get uh, sort of in terms of crossover. Funny you mentioned AFLW. Um, funny you mentioned that because there are some Irish players in the AFLW that mm. have gone over to uh, to Australia to play AFLW. Now, there have been Irish players play AFL, but now there's AFLW, and they're coming from the ladies' skating football background. And interestingly enough, in Ireland, you, you find the, uh, some people, some, some ladies who play gaelic football, and they play rugby as well, because rugby is quite big in Ireland as well, but it's kind of a crossover there in terms of the skills and, and the physical, uh, physical capabilities. 
but yeah, they show AFLW here in Ireland now because of the crossover of, of the players from Ireland going, going to Australia. So there's always been these ties between Australian AFL and uh, Irish sports. Mm. Now, there's one player that comes to mind, which is quite interesting. There's an Irish player, um, an Irish hurling player. His name is Sean Oge O'Halpin. It's a very kind of typical Irish name. Yeah. Now, Sean Oge, um, if you just call him Sean Oge, people just know him as Sean Oge. And Sean Oge means young Sean, by the way. The Oge is, is a kind of a diminutive means young. Um, and that's what we're minding. Hogan is Oge is the, the young, is the young one. That's ah, the kind of thing there. But there yeah, you Oak, if you see, see Oge, uh, like Minogue, Kylie Minogue. Ah, young, young Kali, young Kali. There you go. Yeah. But then, yeah, that's that's the Oak in, in that. But so Sean Oak was actually born in Sydney. His father is from Fiji, and his mother's from Northern Ireland. And he ended up. Uh, he tells a story that when he was growing up in Sydney, uh, rugby league is what he wanted to play. That's what was the big thing that he wanted to play when he was growing up in Sydney. But he came to Ireland when he was about ten or eleven and landed in Cork in the southwest. And I said before, hurling is big in Cork, so he's thrown into the local primary school in Cork. And he's going, what the heck is that? What is this thing? Why, all, why do these people have all these sticks? Yeah. So he took up the game. And because, again, because of his sporting abilities, he was able to pick it up quite quickly. And sort of from the age of picking up a hurley when he's about 11 or 12, he became he developed very, very quickly, picked up the skills to a certain level. I mean, if you see him playing, you can kind of see there's something just not quite right about how he's striking the ball. I'm not quite right, but it's just a bit different. Yeah. Um, but you can you see he's, he's he, he, and he played mostly in defense and he was an excellent defender. Um, but he took up the game and then played inter-county for Cork. And uh, he was part of that team that I mentioned that went on strike in the early 2000s for, for better uh, conditions. Um, so he became quite famous in that, in, in Ireland. But I always remember the interesting thing about Sean Oak uh, that I found was, uh, I'm sure you've come across international rules. And I don't know yeah. what your, your uh, views on international rules are, but international rules for, for your listeners who maybe not know it is a, is a crossover sport between uh, AFL and Gaelic football where they play what's called the compromise rules. So that they use a Gaelic football ball, but the rules, they, they use things like an AFL, like the mark and the tackle is, is there from, from AFL. But he actually played for Ireland. Sean Oak played international rules for Ireland. Yeah. And it was like, I, I remember him being picked for the team going like, hang on a second. Hang on, I had to get my head around this. This is a senior inter-county hurler. That's how I knew Sean Oak, all right? Being put on the Irish international rules team, which is a football-based sport. Yeah. But he was brilliant. He, he yeah. was brilliant. So obviously, not only the thing is, he, he's such a good sporting pedigree that he's able to come to Ireland, play hurling, pick it up to a very, very high level. But at the same time, he obviously was playing Gaelic football all the time in Cork. And mm. probably never played inter-county, but may have, he may have just chosen not to play inter-county because, again, hurling is stronger in Cork. So that's where the, the, good, the good sports guys go, they choose the hurling. But obviously probably played inter-county, or played club senior football all the time and mm. obviously kept up the senior skills such that he was able to play international rules when you had the crossover game. So that, that's a, an interesting story. It's, a, it's amazing to me and, and something like the, the, the sort of multi-sport athlete um, I remember reading in in the Hurlers um, by Paul Rouse. You know, you read about so many of those players back then, who obviously, you know, they were amateurs. They had a career. They were a doctor, or you know, uh, a baker, a candlestick maker, and and they played hurling, 
and they played cricket. Oh, and they played soccer, and occasionally they might go and compete in a, in an Olympic event. It's funny that the AFLW, or I find you know following a lot of the AFL women's players, um, Taylor Harris, uh, who plays for the Demons, is a footballer and she's a boxer, and then um, Rachel Kearns, uh, who's from Mayo, who actually she's come and signed with the Cats this year. So so my team. Um, and she's played Gaelic football. She's played soccer. She's been a boxer as well. And and you can see she's really starting to take to the the footy, um, really well. It it's really cool to see, and I, I love to see it. And it's something you don't see as much in, you know, professional sports. I know in in the NFL, it's almost outlawed. You know, you can't play more than one sport. You know, once you're paid a certain amount your other interests have to cease to exist on sporting fields. I personally love when you see um, athletes who are multi-skilled because to me, it increases the level of skill in all the sports that they play. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's what I like, like about hurling. I, I find that the, we must talk about the ban and let me, let me, let me remind me to talk about the ban in a second. Okay. But yeah, that's right. That's what I found about hurling that I, I really enjoy about hurling is that I could pick up any stick and ball after that and, and, and strike it no matter mm. what it was. Now, um, so a very good hand-eye coordination from the hurling, particularly for a hurling slither and uh, a, a, a meter shot, a yard sized stick. Yeah. Uh, so if you give me a table tennis bat, it'd be a bit different because the, it's obviously the table tennis bat is just the extension of your hand, essentially. Yeah. Um, and the ball is moving slightly different. So you, you, you do learn the skills, you do learn a lot of things, but the, it is actually the, the core skills that you develop as a result of that, the, the, the hand-eye coordination, the physical uh, stamina, the physical strength and endurance then, which can serve as the, as the baseline that you can then use to go into other sports, which is mm. uh, of, of interest. I mentioned the band. Let me talk about the band for a second. Yeah. Now, um, I don't know if you've come across the ban. No. But the ban used to be, no, the ban was a rule that if you played Gaelic Association sports, you could not play any other game. Huh. So you were not allowed. And this was overturned, I, I, I'm not sure exactly when, I think in the 70s. Um, you were not allowed to play games. And if you played another game, you were thrown out of the Gaelic Athletic Association. Hmm. And this, again, comes back to the culture of the association. So as mentioned, the GAA, uh, was founded in the 1880s, so there was the codification of sport, but there was also the rise of Irish culture and the rise of Irish nationalism, because Ireland was still a, a colony of, of, of Great Britain, or the UK, England, however you want to describe it at the time, the British Empire. Mm. Um, so that was, uh, it, other things were coming back then. Irish language, for example, was being looked at again. Irish literature was, was coming back again. So there was a rise of nationalism and a rise of Irish culture including the sports and, and the literature and the language and the music and the dancing in the 18, 1870s, 1880s. So out of that, then there was this sort of uh, idea that people, that if you were Irish, you didn't play was, and those games, I don't know if you ever heard this before, they were called the garrison games. Hmm. So they were played by the British soldiers, rugby, soccer, cricket. They were the garrison games. And if you play Gaelic games, you were not allowed to play the garrison games. And if you were caught playing the garrison games, you'd be thrown out of the Gaelic Athletic Association. So you, you would find my dad, now again, this is again my dad's time, and you, you'd find that there would be spies at, at soccer matches. Wow. And people going like, what are you doing, what are you doing here? Even, even attending the game was something that you weren't supposed to do. You could be in trouble for attending the game. 
uh, I'm not quite sure was that the 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 law or was it the spirit of the law that people were, were applying there yeah but you could get serious trouble for that so people used to sort of but again they would try and do that people would, would play other games but it did lead to uh, a division in some senses in, in society that you had as i said before you had schools where people played either the gaa games or they played uh i won't say the british or garrison games if i want for a better word yeah. Uh, so you have the rugby playing schools in, in, in Dublin and now you have the GAA schools, you have the soccer schools. Um, and it's, it's, that, that's gone now to, to a large extent, but you still find that in, in, this, in this, some areas there are mostly GAA uh, schools. They'll have a soccer team as well. Uh, my, my old school, for example, has, and I only, re, I only recently realized this, they have um, a senior basketball team which plays at a national level in Ireland, but it's based around the school. It came out of the school, but that's because I remember when I was a kid, there was a couple of basketball yards in the school and then we just played basketball before, before school started. But it was just that what you did. But when we played inter-school games, we played GAA games. So that was the ban. So again, there's this idea that you, you were not allowed to play other games. But of course, since that rule went, we've seen a lot more crossover between, between sports. And particularly in kids here around uh, in Ireland, you, you see uh, rugby now is, is become a bit bigger in Ireland over the last couple of years. But you see kids, they'll be playing hurling football on a Saturday and they might have rugby and soccer and when I say hurling gate football and might be rugby and soccer on, on a Sunday. And it's just uh, it's just that they do what they want to do. And they, they go out and guys, there is a certain competition as well between the sports for the players. Um, so, so rugby, for example, um, the one well, attractive things about rugby is rugby is a professional game mm -hmm. so if you do want to actually go down that route there's a chance that you could make a, a living out of it to, to a certain extent uh, so there is that competition now like i said there's competition between hurlers and getting footballers for to get the best players then it's across the coast there's competition so it's an interesting thing at times that's that's amazing and isn't it funny you know the the, the political side of it you know just talking about you know the gaelic you know the GAA, and then you know the the Garrison games and that sort of thing. I, I hear so many people these days sort of talking about, I, you know, I just want my sport. I don't want to have to deal with you know sport and politics and you know athletes having political. Um, and I always sort of laugh because I think about you know the gladiators and stuff in ancient Rome, and and to sort of say that you could extract the politics out of the, <laughs> the you know the theater of of the gladiator arena or. And then likewise, you hear about things like that with the GAA and Garrison Games. Like, I, I guess everything we do as 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 people at, at times is, is is infused with politics of a of a certain um, bent or or other. I guess. Yeah, I mean, if, if you take politics as the um, what's, there are lots of definitions of politics. Probably the best definition of politics is is, is the is the idea of power. The power to make somebody do something um, or to bring them in a certain, a certain direction. But that's applied in everywhere. And it's applied to say in all non-commercial contexts. So the commercial is also using money to make something happen. But as soon as you take that out of the question, because you have to use influence and the influence is based on power structures. Um, and that's, you, you cannot separate that out, particularly when you, probably more so in a game like GAA, which is amateur. Because the, the, the money aspect is much, is much lower to it, uh, much, yeah. plays a much lower role in the game than, than, than the, the anything else. That it is the, the power, it is the, it is the authority to get things done is actually uh, what dictates how the, how the sport develops. 
Another interesting thing we'll, 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 I'll tell you about now as well in terms of politics, and this is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned Crow Park before. Mm. So Crow Park is the uh, national stadium uh, for uh, Gaelic football and hurling and, and handball and, and, and rounders. I play there every so often, but it's the big national stadium in Dublin. Now, another rule related to the ban was that uh, GAA stadium were not allowed to be used for non-GAA sports. So you, you couldn't play a soccer game or a rugby game in in the in the GAA stadium. Now, that was probably very closely related to the ban. Mm. There was a problem that arose about twenty years ago, uh, when Lansdowne Road, which is the old rugby stadium in Dublin, was being redeveloped because it meant that the Irish rugby team and soccer team didn't have a home, didn't have a big enough stadium to play their games in for any home games. And there was talk then, oh, my God, would Ireland have to play their home games in Wembley, for example, in London or in Wales, in, in Cardiff? And people were saying, well, hang on a second. We have this big stadium over the, uh, about five miles up, up the road there, has, can take about 80,000 80, people. Why don't we use that stadium? But that was the rule at the time was you, the GAA said, no, you can't use uh, our stadium for non-GAA games. Now, the significance of Crow Park, there's a further significance to Crow Park. And it has to do with something called Bloody Sunday. So Bloody Sunday, uh, just very brief uh, history le lesson here. So uh, I mentioned before, 1884, uh, GA came in, into being. Uh, 1916 was the, the Easter Rising. After the Easter Rising, there was the War of Independence. And the War of Independence was a guerrilla campaign waged around 1920, 1921 uh, in Ireland against the, uh, the, the British forces at the time. And on this Bloody Sunday, um, what actually happened was um, in the morning of, of Bloody Sunday, there was an attack by uh, IRA, the, the old IRA, the Irish Republican Army, as it was then, uh, operatives on British um, espionage, uh, counter-terrorism uh, counter uh, people, detectives essentially back, these called detectives back in the day. But this was an attack in the morning. And what they did is they went around to... Uh, five or ten locations there thereabouts in Dublin and they literally shot people that they found there they knew who they wanted to go and they shot the people in their beds in front of their wives it was quite quite brutal for for the time mm. and so that was a, an attack on the Sunday morning by the IRA in retaliation then in the afternoon of the of the Sunday uh, the British army then British forces attacked a game that was taking place now it's unclear whether they attacked the game, I guess the fog of war, the fog of history and so on and so forth. But there was a game that was taking place in Crow Park that afternoon between Dublin and Tipperary, an, an inter-county football game. It was actually a challenge game. It wasn't a, it wasn't a league or a championship, it was a challenge game. And British forces uh, arrived out there and they shot into the crowd and they shot onto the pitch. And at the end of the day, um, I'm not sure now, but maybe 10 people may have died as a result of that. And uh, amongst them was actually a player. One of the Tipperary players was killed uh, during the game because literally the, 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 the shot started. People panicked. People died from the ground. People were exposed. People, players were lying down on the pitch trying to avoid being shot. And uh, one, I say one of the players was, was shot and then he died from, from his wounds. So one of the stands in Crow Park was then named after this player. His name was Michael Hogan. Now, it's the same name, but he's no, no relative. 
Um, so there's a very famous stand in Crow Park called the Hogan Stand. So there's that cultural backdrop to Crow Park. Crow Park is a GAA. Uh, there was a, the attack by the British forces. Uh, the Hogan Stand is where the players go up to to receive the, uh, the uh, All-Ireland Cups at the end of the day. Very, very famous stand. But then roll on uh, 18, 90 years, we have a situation where the Irish rugby team uh, is looking for a place to play and the Irish soccer team. And the GAA has this rule saying that there's no, no, uh, uh, no foreign games. They would, they would call them foreign games allowed in GAA, uh, game, in the GAA stadium. So there was a, a campaign uh, was discussed, took a couple of years. It, it wasn't a slam dunk, but the GAA then actually did change the rules and said, okay, uh, we, we will allow the rugby and the soccer players to use the, the game for uh, the stadium for national games. As it happened then, shortly afterwards, England were due to play Ireland in the rugby in Crow Park. Wow. And this was, there was a lot of tension and talk about this, about the historical significance of this. People thinking, God save the Queen at Crow Park? Hmm, not sure that's going to go down very, very well, <laughs> given the history that I just told you about. Yeah. So the day came and uh, it was extraordinary. There was a lot of preparation for it in the sense that I, I know, for example, that uh, uh, one of the Irish, uh, uh, senior Irish, uh, he was a coach now in the UK, in England. He actually briefed the English team on, the, on, on Crow Park and the significance of Crow Park in Ireland and what happened in Bloody Sunday and all the rest of it. And um, the, game, the game came and uh, it was massively uh, attended. It was full to the rafters in Crow Park. And God Save the Queen was struck up by the, the, the joint band of the, 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 uh, the police and the army. And it was respectfully sung. There wasn't any booing or, or hissing or anything like that. People trying to drown it out. And uh, it was sung. But then the Irish national anthem came on. And that is spine tingling. To hear that being sung by 80,000 people, full voice in Crow Park on that day, that was, that was something else. And to top it off, we won as well. We beat, we beat the English that, that day. And to top it off even further, actually, this was, there was a nice touch where at one point, uh, if you ever see the, the highlights of the game or the game itself, there was a try scored. Uh, the game was kind of almost won at that stage. But there was a try scored where uh, the rugby ball was kicked from one side of the pitch to the other, and it was fielded then by the, the right winger, a guy called Shane Horgan, but it was fielded what we would call GAA style by catching the ball with AFL side, you'd call as well, by catching the ball above his, above his head and, and jumping over the English winger. And people thought, that's, that's Gaelic football for you. That's, yeah. that's what you learn from Gaelic football, is the, those skills. So bring on the English, bring on anybody who wants to play us in Crow Park was, was the idea. Now, the only thing was, we'd lost to the French two weeks beforehand in the same stadium. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but still, still the significance of the day was, was, was something else. Yeah, isn't it amazing? I get goosebumps just hearing you talk about it, setting the scene. Um, those moments are are so powerful in sport. That they just, I, it's it's funny. I sort of, and as listeners, kind of, or people who have listened to the show before, um, if you're a new listener, you may not. But you know, my sort of background is in both arts and sport, and I find it funny because. Generally, the sports community doesn't really like the arts community from where I've been. And the arts community don't really like the sports community. And there's a sort of a little bit of sneering down the nose from both parties. 
the irony, of course, is for me that both forms of human gathering and expression give us these moments, like give us these these incredible moments of that sort of transcend everything else. You know, sport mm. has those moments that transcends like art as art has those moments that, that transcend like sport. Um, and, and has that gone forward that, that, that is, is Croke Park now the, you know, the official home of the rugby team as well? Is that sort of. No, they, what happened was they, they finished the redevelopment in, in Lansdowne road. And yeah. that, that's where the, 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 the players, they would, Funnily enough, uh, every so often there's talk of um, of Ireland hosting maybe major, uh, major European uh, football matches, yeah. and for some reason that they'll always bring the people to Crow Park and they say, "Look, you, you could play the game in, in this stadium." Yeah, um, people going, "It's awfully big for a football match, for a football stadium," <laughs> because the, again, the dimensions of the, the dimensions are bigger. Remember, it's 150 yeah. meters long is the, the length of a, a hurling pitch. So a rugby pitch is, is kind of small in that. You see, at the end, there's a lot of grass at the end of it. And similarly for soccer, it look, looks quite small. Um, but yeah, they, they, they showed them the stadium and said, well, you could play it in this game, play the game here. But it's ne- hasn't happened so far. It hasn't happened since. And said so the Lansdowne Road has been redeveloped. It is a 50,000 seat stadium. Mm. Um, and every so often people say, well, why don't you just play a game in Crow Park? Because you, you, you fill Crow Park with some matches like playing New Zealand or... Uh, against England, you you fill Crow Park, but no, it's, it's again, it's the competition. The idea is that the GAA doesn't want to give a platform too big a platform to uh, other sports. Yep. So there's always that competition as well. Well, I guess that's I, I suppose if you frame it that way, you know, the the sports like rugby and soccer that have those prof- the, those potential professional outcomes, the GAA yes. holds on to that sense of history and tradition. I guess that's its draw. It's it's draw card for people, I, I guess too. So I, I kind of understand it, um, and and I hope I hope long may that may that reign the the tradition of 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 the amateurism part of it because I think it's something that makes it really special and it's even funny thinking about AFLW here um, and following various professional sports. There is something I think that's lost when sports become professional. At, 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 the, at, the, at the sort of most grotesquely, you know, um, uh, financial capitalist end of things. You know, when, when you have people earning 50, yeah. $60 million a year, it is different. There is something that changes um, about the way it's played, about the way people conduct themselves. Um, in my opinion, anyway, I don't what, what, know if you find yeah. the same thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I do think it is. I, 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 I do think it is. It very much is, it's a game with, if the game is amateur, the only reason you're going to play it is for the love of the game mm-hmm. because that's all you're going to get from it. You're only going to get the, the benefits that, that, that come from that. There are no extrinsic benefits going to come on top of that. Um, and, and that's why I think there's something more, to me, it's it, because it's, it, it, it will always be that. It will stay with you, I think, for life as a result of that, I think. I don't think it's a case that you will have a short career, get your money, and then play soccer for ten years, and then retire and play golf for the rest of your life, kind of thing. That's that's not what's what's on, on offer here. It's something that then becomes very much part of you, and it is it is who you are. And so that, that's kind of the amateur ethos. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the. I always find it interesting uh, in terms of structures of championships or, or, or leagues. Um, we have the the biggest competition in in. Uh, in Gaelic football and hurling is the All-Ireland competition. 
that's an inter-county competition where the counties play each other. Um, I say it's county against county. The county's not changing. The players who play for the county are not changing. So it's very much, it's, it's, it's place against place. And I'm always struck by then, it has, it has some vagaries around that then where it can lead to a situation where uh, because you're born in a certain county, that's the game that's played there. Kilkenny is, is one that comes to mind. I don't know if you've heard of Kilkenny. Kilkenny is a very, very strong hurling county. Mm. But Gaelic football is tiny in Kilkenny. And they always get, they have a, a, a Gaelic football team, but nobody, nobody really wants to play Gaelic football. They always, get, they always get thumped in Gaelic football. And they can't change that. They can't bring in players from Dublin or anywhere else to play, play for Kilkenny. Mm. That just doesn't happen. And I'm always structured by, and that can kind of lead to, a sort of lopsided things happening where you might find that one county becomes dominant and it seems to become dominant for an extended period of time and it can't change because you can't buy players in to change that situation mm. um so and that can then lead to people saying oh dublin's just gone through a, a situation recently where dublin won five uh senior uh football all irelands in a row so five or six i can't remember now off the top of my head now to be honest um, like, but it got to a stage where it can be, can be boring. Yeah. That's why I can't remember whether, whether it's five yeah. or six when I stopped paying attention. <laughs> yeah. And then people were saying, what, we, we should divide Dublin into two because Dublin has a population advantage. And there's North Dublin and the South Dublin. We should divide it up or even divide it into three because it has a geographical advantage because, as like I said, its place is the important thing. But now, uh, between one thing and another, uh, in the current football league, Dublin is bottom of the league. They haven't won a game in, in three matches. Now, the league is, uh, is not as important as the All-Ireland Championship, and very often the league is used to try players who uh, may or may not make the championship team. But you think, how could Dublin have gone in, in the space of two or three years from winning five, six championships in a row to being bottom of the league? But that's, it's kind of a curious thing. Even though it is place, there's, there are players changing, there is management changing, other teams are developing, they're learning at the same time. And what I always find interesting is to contrast that then with the NFL. Because very often people will say, oh, look at the NFL league. That's, that's, that's how you should structure a league where uh, with the draft system, players can actually, uh, the worst team gets the best players. And um, I don't know if you've been following me closely this year, but um, I, for some reason I took particular attention to the Detroit Lions, uh, kind of like the fact that they lost every game, but they tried yeah. the hardest. <laughs> time. And, but then in the last couple of games it came down to, well, should they be trying this hard? If they, if they lose this game here, they will get a, a better draft pick next year. Yeah. And, but that goes against the idea of sport. You, you always play, when you're playing, you're, you're, you're trying to win. You're not trying to lose the game. Yeah. And then you take that further where you get the idea of the franchise. It's the franchise that matters. So the think, LA Rams, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, won the Super Bowl this year. Yeah. Were they not the St. Louis Rams for a long time? Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah, or was it Arizona? I can't quite remember. No, they, they, they were St. St. Louis. I think they were even maybe the Cleveland Rams a long time ago. I can't yes. remember. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I, I do recall being the first time I came across this, this um, I couldn't believe it. Literally one team, I think it was Indianapolis, Indianapolis Colts, the Colts. They, I think, literally moved franchise, moved city overnight once. <laughs> The, yep. trucks, the trucks came in and they cleared the thing out. And I guess it's the franchise. So the franchise is moving around the country and it's, mm-hmm. it has the ability to take players in from, from the, the best players in out of the college at the end of it if they're, if, they are, if they're very poor. But then you see how it kind of evens up the, the, the opportunities for teams o- over the time. 
And it's a very kind of capitalist thing to do. It's, it's actually, it's not capitalist, it's probably socialist is probably the best way to describe it. It's actually more socialist uh, system than capitalist. But what I always find laughable is then Super Bowl, winner of the Super Bowl, the cup is awarded to the owner. Yeah. You know, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah was, the players, like... the players, the players barely get the players barely get up there. <laughs> yeah. It's the coach and maybe two or three players, but it's yeah. the owner that gets the cup. Yeah. I thought it was bizarre. Know, what's going on? Because the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the Rams guy, the, the Rams owner, Stan Kroenke or something, he's the guy, oh, I'm an Arsenal fan. I became an Arsenal fan in the yeah. soccer. And, you know, we we have done nothing since that undefeated season in 2003, 2004. Mm. And, and the guy who owns the Rams owns Arsenal. And I I, I keep saying they should never have left Highbury. The, the soul of the club went out when, when they moved to this big modern stadium. And it's... It's funny, isn't it? I'm just laughing about the irony of you saying, you know, it's more of a socialist system. That, and it kind of is, you know, and, and there's a certain sense of irony about that given kind of the, mm. the way you would, you would tend to think about the NFL as being sort of more of an expression of capitalism and in so many ways, I, I guess it is. But, but I guess it would be strange, wouldn't it? It would be strange to think of um, the Premier County as a franchise that moves around, you know, like in hurling, like quite bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the contrast. It's the contrast. It's, it's very much, a, it's place. It's, it's where you're born. That's, that's who you are. That's who your, your team is. How does that work? And I understand we're sort of starting to get towards the, the end of the podcast and um, I'm sure there's more ground, ground to cover down the road, but I, I sort of had just a few like specific little questions that have been playing on my mind about some of the intricacies. So you you talked about um, Sean Og Sean Og um, playing you know born in Sydney and then going and playing I assume that sort of ha all happened when he was quite young over here in Australia you know I know even recently near where I live there's a there's a concrete fabric uh, prefabrication precast fab, uh, whatever it's called uh, something to do with concrete <laughs> factory here and we've had a lot of um, Irish guys move out here we've had um south african guys move out for the work and they'll join in the local soccer clubs they'll join in the local footy clubs they'll join in the local cricket clubs what's it like if you move you know if, if an if an australian born and raised australian moves over to ireland say for work do they can are they welcome to come and play gaelic games or is that frowned on Oh yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely welcomed, definitely welcomed. Yeah, okay. I, I was telling my daughter the last day. I, I remember, and I don't know how this happened. Um, when I was in national school, a primary school, as we call it, in second class and third class. So what age is that? About eight, nine, ten. For some obscure reason, we had a guy from Poland. He must be <laughs> the son of uh, some guy in the Polish embassy in our class, and we gave him a hurley. And yep. because uh, for some reason, I think. Whatever way the ages worked out, he was slightly taller than us. So we yeah. stuck him in at full forward and just told him to swing. Yeah. Uh, and he did. And yeah. so that, that was great. We, I, I seem to recall we had a Mexican guy as well, uh, for some <laughs> reason. Um, I, I, I don't know where he came from. Again, maybe, maybe the embassies, the, the diplomatic things. No, but definitely, people, people are definitely welcome to come, come and play the game. And actually, what, what you see now in Ireland, Ireland is changing very much in the last couple of years. It's a lot more cosmopolitan. Yeah. Um, and you see a lot more people who are uh, from different uh, different racial backgrounds living in Ireland. 
but yeah. also playing Gaelic games. So you, you have guys who maybe their parents are Nigerian, mm. uh, but they're playing Gaelic football in, in Ireland now. But again, it's sort of it's the place. It's you come, you land in a, in, a, in a village or a town, and what they do there is they play Gaelic football and hurling. Uh, one of the best hurlers in the country over the last couple of years is, is, a, is a Chinese guy, Chinese-Irish guy. Yeah. His name is Lee Chin. He plays, plays for Wexford. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, fantastic sportsman. Yeah, fantastic mm. sportsman. And um, but again, it's it's uh, there's a very interesting uh, book. I probably, I'm sure you may have come across called I think it's called the Sports Gene uh, by David Epstein. And uh, David Epstein will talk about the idea of um, that that you it depends on what you see when you're passing by on the train. Hmm. So you're in the train, you look around, and you see what you see is what you do. So where you are, so that's why New Zealand great rugby players it's because everybody wants to play rugby in, in New Zealand it's not there's no it's sort of there's no uh, natural uh, ability no natural reason why the, the New Zealand has the best rugby players in, in the world uh, but it is it's the big sport it's the all blacks it's the mythos of the all blacks it's all it's all it's, it's embedded into the culture and the same thing in in, uh, in Ireland sort of where you where you uh, end up is you look around well everybody plays get get the games here so that, that's what I do. I go down and play Gaelic games. So yeah, people are very welcome. It's not a problem. And actually what we find actually now with the, there is a, there's a large, uh, what we call Irish diaspora where people have moved abroad from Ireland uh, over the years for many reasons. And uh, you, you'll see there are a lot of GA clubs now springing up uh, around the world uh, where Irish people are playing the games that, they, uh, that they've brought with them. Mm. And actually what accident, I, I, I know a friend of mine, she ended up being the, uh, oh, she's secretary of the GAA club in Stockholm in Sweden. Wow. But she had never any, anything to do with GAA when she was growing up in, in Dublin. Nothing. Like I said before, as I mentioned before, there's kind of, you end up in sort of the GAA stream in schools or you end up in the, the rugby hockey kind of, she ended up in the rugby hockey kind of uh, stream. Yeah. Nothing to do with GAA, but her, she married a Swedish guy and she wanted, the kids wanted to play a game. And they said, well, well get, get football and hurling. Hurling is, is attractive to Swedes because of ice hockey. Yeah. They see, they see the stick in sports and go, well, that's interesting. And there's actually, uh, there is actually, I'm pretty sure, uh, I tried to look it up beforehand. I'm pretty sure there's a similar game in Sweden. It has a funny name mm. um, to hurling. Uh, and it's, all, it's like ice hockey on grass as opposed to, to hurling. But it's, mm. it, I'll, I'll check it out. Maybe it's in the afterwards. Um, have, have you heard of Shinty? I don't know if you heard of Shinty. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shinty. Yeah, so sh- Shinty is no, yeah, that's another kind of stick and ball game. So like you, you've hurling in Ireland with the, the shorter sticks. Shinty is the longer sticks in Scotland, and the, the game in Sweden is a bit more. It's kind of mixed between Shinty and hurling. Um, I'll, and I'll check out what that is. But in any case, so for she ended up being involved in the GA club, even though she had no involvement with the GA before ever. Yeah. And I'll tell you a very funny story. She was she, very funny story. She was a gas once. She went to a committee meeting. And um, it was in a bar, one of the Irish pubs in, in Stockholm. And so they were getting ready to have the committee meeting. There's, I don't know, maybe five or six of them. I'm not sure how many were in the, in, the, in the room. And just as the meeting was about to start, somebody said, well, we should say a prayer. And so they all got down on their knees to say a prayer before the committee meeting. And she's going, what have I got myself into? What the hell is this? But again, it's, sorry, it's a strand of Irish culture. Yeah. so closely in, intertwined uh so it's part of said it, it, it's just one strand obviously she's obviously as irish as anybody else but it was not part of her cultural background as well yeah but it was somehow this this one chapter of religion gaa ireland so all, all comes together 
Yeah. She's like, well, fun and games and, and going out drinking yeah. is my Irish culture. Yeah. Um, but I have some kids here. And now she's actually fine. She's secretary of the Stockholm GA Club. Wow. So yeah. you find you find GA clubs now in yeah, all, all over the place now as well. And in, interesting enough, the, where the Irish have gone, GA is gone as well. And a funny example of that is, is Argentina. Mm. There used to be a hurling club in Argentina. And it's now actually more a hockey and rugby club. But I remember looking into it once, and uh, apparently the reason why they stopped playing hurling was they ran out of ran out of hurlies at the, during the Second World War. They couldn't get the ash anymore. They couldn't ah, get the hurlies. Oh wow! Well, I saw so. a picture the other day of um, uh, Boca Juniors, the Argentinian soccer mm -hmm. team over there. I thought, now that jersey looks suspiciously like Tipperary's hurling jersey to me, with the blue and the <laughs> the gold stripe through the middle. Um, do you think? Uh, I was just thinking about ash. Actually, the the property I live on is covered in ash trees, um, so so okay. maybe maybe one day I'll have to have a crack. I, I actually there was an Irish guy um, from Kilkenny. Uh, he was an instrument maker, and he was part of an arts co-op I was a part of a few years ago. And my big regret is not having been into hurling when he was here, because he was such a craftsman. I reckon we could have made made me a hurley from some some ash out here, but. Um, so yeah, with COVID and, and this global pandemic that everyone's sort of been through, um, I've personally found that it's made me appreciate home and, and the things around me in my community more than ever. Um, do you think a sport like hurling and, and specifically, I guess, GAA or more broadly GAA games, has there been a sort of a positive affirmation for people to sort of go, yeah, this is actually really great. I love that we have this club in my, you know, in my town. I love that I'm a part of this. Has it sort of affirmed those sort of home comforts like hurling, like Gaelic games, do you think? I think, I think it has to a certain extent, maybe a bit too early to draw conclusions from that. Yeah. But I think what definitely people have come to realize is um, obviously with the pandemic, there was the rise of homeworking. Yeah. And what happened in Ireland is a lot of people decided, well, you know what? I don't need to be in Dublin to, to work. I can work from where I'm actually from. I mentioned yeah. urban migration earlier. So a lot of people moved back to where, where they are from. And it, it is that, that sense of place and, and identity, which is so closely linked then to the sense of, of club, which binds people together. So I think that will have uh, an effect on that, an effect on that go, going forward. I think that will increase and strengthen the bonds that people have to their place of origin and then by extension to the local GAA clubs yeah absolutely well, I, I hope it does I hope it's uh, yeah as I said I, I fell in love with this sport of hurling the moment the moment I laid eyes on it um, my, my only regret is that I didn't discover it younger um, and, and find a way to get my my hands on a hurley I will be ordering a hurley um, so I can have a bit of a hit around uh, around a footy oval or something. Me and a couple of mates have watched some games together. Um, I'm converting them pretty rapidly. So uh, we'll be keen to run around and, and, and try our hand at it. But it, it definitely feels like a sp it has all the things that I love in a sport. It, it, it's aggressive, you know, movement of the ball. It's, it's not defensive. It's expressive. Um, and I was, I was, it, it's been fun. It's been a fun thing to research and, and to learn about my own, my own Irish roots on my great grandmother's side who, who came from Templemore in Tipperary. Um, that's been really fun. So it, it's a great game 
to have stumbled across because it, it's connecting me to a lot of things even outside of sport, which has been... I'm glad, I'm glad you came across it. I, I, like I said, I, I love the game. I think it's the best game ever, to be honest. I, I haven't seen anything which is, combines as, as many aspects of, of uh, physical uh, capability in, into, the one, into the one sport in such a small package. Mm. Uh, there are times I watch other games like NFL or AFL, and, and you do have to admire some of the things they do. Mm. But it's just part of the game. It's just a small part of their game. Uh, whereas in hurling, it's part of hurling and some more things then as well are added mm. on top of that. Yeah. And then you add all the whole cultural aspects of it, the amateur ethos, the, the ties to the local place and everything. It's very, very special. Very, very special. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I really appreciate you reaching out, first of all, making contact. I'm glad that by, you know, the, the tweet deck that my my random mm. uh, retweet of the hurling, uh, the Camogie lacrosse video found its way to your twitter and and that you reached out really appreciate your time and uh welcome back anytime anytime you want to come back on and have a chat about gaelic games or the, the history of sports anything anything you like it's an open door i really appreciate it mark i appreciate the time jake thanks for having me on appreciate it no worries